Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by ProPublica journalist Julia Angwin, who's the author of Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. She's here as a guest of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Julia, thanks for joining us. It's so great to be here. Your book traces your journey through online privacy, or perhaps lack thereof. Um, Can you tell us about what you found? So basically, I tried to protect my privacy within the realm of living in the modern world. You know, I didn't want to actually go live in the woods or something. So I basically tried to keep all the technology that I love, but mitigate how much data it was sending out about me without my knowledge. So I was fairly successful at protecting my web browsing, building better passwords, setting up some fake accounts with fake names in order to protect some of my online shopping. But I found that there were two pieces of my private privacy world that I just couldn't solve. One was data brokers. These companies basically buy and sell lists of your, of your name, your address, your property records, your um, magazines you subscribe to, basically anything they can get about you. They have pretty rich dossiers on all of us. And I couldn't even get the companies to show me the data they had about me. And um, most of them didn't offer opt-outs. And so I wasn't able to remove my data or see what was held about me in that world. And that was really disappointing. And the other part that was really challenging for me was my cell phone. Basically, in order to use it, it needs to be in constant communication with the cell phone towers, and it also sends out data that I'm not aware of, like a local Wi-Fi signal might be connected to it, or even my apps can be sending data to people that I don't know about, to advertisers or others. Um, And I wasn't able to successfully control that. There isn't really good privacy software you can install on your phone. And so I ended up having to get a fake Um, a phone in a fake name, essentially a burner phone, um, that at least I knew that my movements were being tracked but under a different name. But of course, anyone who really looked at the data would quickly realize that it's me. You talk about keeping your data private. Who are you keeping it private from? Well, I was worried about both commercial and governmental surveillance. So I am worried about the retailers who set up little... um, things to notice your Wi-Fi signal as you're walking by to note that your phone was um, there. I'm also worried about the police who drive around the neighborhood taking pictures of every single license plate and keeping it in a database of where your car was at any given time. Um, I think that they're also inextricably linked. Uh, The Snowden revelations really showed us how the government is constantly knocking on the door of these big tech companies for their data with secret court orders. We also saw, shockingly, in the Snowden revelations that sometimes the government just steals it, right? We saw that they were trying to break into these transmissions between the Google data centers. And I think we now have a better understanding of how far the com- the government will go to get commercial data. Mm-hmm. What what are the risks here? What, what are the dangers here for with all this information about you being out there? Well, from the government side, the the risk is obvious, right? Which mm-hmm. is like they can put you in jail, they can accuse you of a crime, et cetera. On the commercial side, it's less obvious. But my reporting has shown that over um, the past couple of years, I've done several projects at the Wall Street Journal where we showed that um, online retailers were using personal data about people who visited their website to show them different prices or offer them different credit cards. And I think we're entering a world where it's very clearly going to be true that when you go into an online store and probably fairly soon an offline store, 
they're going to know a lot about you. And that is going to limit your ability to negotiate, right? If they know that I have five more dollars in my pocket than you, what's to um, prevent them from charging me the extra five dollars? It's not illegal. And in fact, economists would say it's a good thing to charge people exactly what they can bear. Well, yeah, a marketer might might respond that, well, perhaps they'd charge me a five dollars less. Right. Well, and that's also interesting because the truth is that if you look at the way marketers make their decisions, they may well charge wealthier people lower prices because Mm -hmm. the long-term value of that customer is higher if they can get them to repeat. And so you could easily see a situation, which we have already seen actually, um, that, you know, prices in poor neighborhoods often in like the local store, milk costs more, right? Mm -hmm. But we could see that at a scale, right, that maybe we've never seen before. The Snowden revelations kind of came about right in the middle of your writing this book. How did it transform what you were talking about? Like a lot of people who'd been covering this topic, um, I suspected that the government was doing what Snowden showed they were doing. We had had many hints. There had been a story in USA Today and back in 2006 about the phone dragnet, and no one had ever been able to really report it out or see the documents. But people in my line of work... We really thought this seems to be happening, but we couldn't prove it. And that's mm-hmm. why the Snowden revelations were so incredible, because suddenly there was so much proof. And in fact, I thought I hadn't been paranoid enough. I thought I was at the far end of paranoid, but it turned out that actually I was kind of in the middle ground and they were doing much more surveillance than I thought. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you spoke before about um, these data brokers. So where are they getting this information from? Public records, mostly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you change your address at the post office, that is for sale. Um, States often sell their voter lists. Public um, property records are usually available. So uh, data brokers basically are in the business of compiling all these public sources, and then they buy from commercial sources, too, Mm -hmm. um, and putting together a file about you and then selling it. And what, what does it say about you to have these public records? Well, so I found in my files um, every single address I'd ever lived at, dating back to actually the number on my dorm room in college, which I'd actually forgotten until I saw it in one of these data broker files. Um, I saw a record of a lot of the shopping that I had done online. I saw um, a lot of information about my kids, my relatives. Um, One data broker I remember had actually the month that I lived with my parents in between jobs right after college, they kind of had that tagged. It was really surprising to me how detailed it was. It seems like that with both the data brokers and the and the cell phone companies, mm-hmm. there's no uh, there's no way to avoid this. I mean, is there any way to... Uh, that seems like it's a call for regulation. If, if... <laughs> right. I mean, the thing is that... You know, the companies believe that if they just put it in the privacy policy, then it's a contract and you've agreed to it and that's it. And that, and then they change the privacy policy. So even though you agreed to one thing, they change it. And um, it's kind of an incredible system, right? There's the like real choices that you have are pretty limited, right? Mm-hmm. I did make some real choices. Like I switched off of using Google search, right? And that was something I was able to find a privacy protecting search engine. But there is no switch you can make off of your cell phone. Like right. I, every cell phone, basically has the same kind of terms of service. And so, yes, I think you have to then look to some other solution. Most likely is going to be some sort of regulation. Mm-hmm. And do you know how <laughs> what, what that might look like? I don't know, but I guess I always, like my dream scenario is, mm-hmm. um, I always talk about automobiles. So automobiles are unsafe. 
They're very dangerous. We get in them all the time. We drive all the time. And the reason is because we know that they meet a certain safety standard. Right. So obviously they're still you know, the leading cause of death in this country, but we know that there are um, safety standards and if they violate them, we can sue them or they're going to have to go testify in Capitol Hill and say sorry and pay millions to the victims. So mm-hmm. we understand that there's a legal process. They're held responsible for their mistakes. And that gives us assurances about getting into the car. That's what I want for my data. I just want some assurances it's not going to be used in some terribly egregious way against me. And then I would feel much better about participating in the data economy. Now, what would that mean? I mean, what kind of things are are you worried about that data (laughs) being used against you? Well, I mean, it can be used for all sorts of reasons, right? It could be used to... um, put me on the no-fly list, or it could be used to charge me higher prices, or it could be used to deny me employment or to deny me credit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of ways that your data can be used against you. And really, I think as a society, we have to figure out which are the ones we care about most and then try to put some assurances around those areas. I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to solve all of the areas, but we have a history of caring about health and financial data and kids' data. And currently, we do have sectoral laws in those areas, but they don't. Um, there's often they're very outdated, so they often have loopholes that that new technology can drive through. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, you seem to have found a lot of workarounds to try and uh, keep your data protected. Uh, they're fairly fairly complex. I'd love for you to tell us about a few of them, but also I'm I'm interested in uh, you know is there do you think that this is something that the nor- the larger public can engage in because it I mean technologically they're complicated, um, but they're also a little bit of a burden. Yeah, I use a lot of like complicated technology, and um, you know even the encryption tools I use to make my emails. Um, scrambled so that mm-hmm. if you and I have the same encryption software, we can send almost unreadable emails to anyone else. Right. Even that is actually extremely difficult to use and hard for a non-tech person. And I'm a tech person and it's hard for me to use. Um, and so I basically feel like I tried all these sort of technological means to protect my privacy. And in the end, I felt I'm kind of outgunned here, right? Mm-hmm. The people on the other side who are trying to get my data have better technology. It's hopefully more usable than mine. And um, and so I'm not going to win this arms race. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that there's, I mean, what, what were some of the things that you actually engaged in? What? Well, so for instance, I used a bunch of different encryption tools. I used um, PGP software for my email. I used something called off-the-record messaging, which encrypts your instant messaging. I used some encryption apps on my phone, Silent Circle for my iPhone and um, Secure Text and Red Phone for the Android phone. So I use all sorts of things for encryption. But the thing is, the other party has to have the same app or the same software. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking to like four people on these things. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it's interesting. In your uh, presentation before, you mentioned how uh, you disconnected from Facebook, or at least you unfriended everyone mm-hmm. in your in your group. Um, that seems to be a trade-off that a lot of us make. You know, we give up our personal data so that we have really access to our friends on Facebook and elsewhere and be able to communicate with people. Is that no longer a worthwhile uh, expenditure? I mean, for for me as a consumer, it feels like I'm really giving up nothing and getting something for free. But in the end, you're saying that's not true. Well, no, you are currently giving up, basically. You don't know 
what the price of your data is, right? Mm -hmm. So it feels free. And that's the reason that it, this is such a confusing area is no one knows how to price their data. Right. right now I can tell you what it sells for right now, which is like a tenth of a cent for your browsing history, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that doesn't tell you the long-term price of having everything known about you in 10 years from now, somebody coming to you and saying, you know, what you did 10 years ago is now illegal, that kind of thing, right? right. So the problem is that we can't adequately price our data. So it feels like a fair transaction right now. And in fact, Facebook would argue, look, it, this is a free service and you're paying with by paying attention to our ads and that's a decent trade. And I actually would be fine with engaging with that trade once again if I had some baseline assurances that they weren't actually going to do some other crazy thing with my data, which right. they currently don't have. They they don't have the assurance. There's no because... assurance, right? They could just change their policy and be like, tomorrow it turns out we're going to just use all this data to figure out which one of you is a, going to be a criminal in the future and turn that over to the government, right? Mm -hmm. My point is like it could be anything, right? And until we have some sort of baseline protection, how can we feel like we really understand the trade we're making? Now, what about, I mean, kind of free market pressures? If, if Facebook came out and did that, surely there would be... <laughs> A great, a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, roar of, of yes. Um, well, disagreement. the thing is, there have been many outcries against Facebook actually right. over privacy issues. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about them is that uh, they haven't really caused any defections. And I think that's why Facebook keeps doing them because mm -hmm. they realize, like, you know what, this stuff makes it into the press, but it doesn't really change anything. Right. Right. And so the truth is, like, where are you going to switch? There's not another Facebook. All your friends are on it. It's a right. network. Yeah, network effects. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Julie Angwin, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. It was great to be here. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. <laughs> <laughs>